Hi, everybody. It's John Dickerson. Welcome or welcome back to the Connection Point podcast. At the end of this episode, I'd encourage you to take a moment and check out cp.news on your web browser. Connection Point is a church that is fully online, and you can follow Jesus one day at a time from anywhere in the world with us. Well, I pray this message inspires you and challenges you today to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, I believe God is at work in your story. I don't know, in your story right now, would you consider yourself in a good chapter, a good episode, or a difficult one? Uh, All our lives will pass through difficulty, and we're in week one of a series where I believe God really wants to speak to you about the lowest lows in your life, as well as the great moments in your life. He wants to let you know that he's there. He wants you to know that if you'll turn to him, he has a story for your life that you could never write on your own apart from him. You know, this series, Origin Story, we'll be looking in the Word of God, but we'll also be looking at our own lives, each of us individually. Where did we come from? Who has God made us to be? What does God want us to do with our lives? And of course, part of Origin Story is that we all entered the world naked and crying. You know, we all, we didn't get to pick who our family would be. We didn't get to pick where we'd be born or what our birthday would be. Uh, Here's a little bit of my origin story. This is me and my three brothers. Uh, I am a youngest, and as you can tell, I was born in the 1980s by our awesome 1980s attire. I ran this uh, baby face, me as a baby, chubby little guy, through one of those things on social media where it pairs you with your celebrity lookalike. You guys want to know my uh, childhood celebrity lookalike? Here he is, Chris Farley. The late, great Chris Farley. (laughs) Funny guy. I wish I was as funny as he, as funny as he is. But, um, you know, 1980s were a great time to grow up. I grew up in the late 80s and in the 90s, and uh, fashion was different. Uh, Really, I think childhood was a lot different than now. It was an era, at least where I grew up in the Midwest, where kids were to be seen but not heard, or better yet, just not seen at all. I mean, we had like total freedom, both for better and worse, like for like total neglect and total uh, ability to go ride our BMX bikes in the woods in the summer for like hours and go, you know, miles from home. No one knew where we were or what we were doing. And uh, in a lot of ways, it was a great way to grow up. I remember a day in, I don't know if it was second grade, third grade, somewhere around there, I'm a car guy, and every morning in the summer, I would wake up in elementary, and I would gather my matchbox cars, and I would go sit on our front porch. It was just a cement slab, and we were on a really busy road. And I loved sitting there because I could watch all the cars go by, and I would play with my cars on the porch. I remember this day. You can laugh at me. I don't know if I was third grade or how old I was, but I'm playing with my cars, and people are driving by, and I look down, and I realize that I'm in my whitey-tidy underwear. And and I think this had been the norm in my life up until that point. You know, I'd sleep like that, I'd wake up, I'd go outside and start playing. But I was finally old enough to realize this isn't normal. So I ran inside and I grabbed some neon fluorescent green shorts, put those on and resumed playing. Uh, A lot of times we were just kind of on our own and it it was a great way to live. Around seventh or eighth grade, I started getting into not only cars, but into dirt bikes. And the reason for that really is that my two best friends, Nate and Jamie, uh, they were into dirt bikes. So I already had my Motor Trend subscription and my Car and Driver magazine subscription. I added Motor Cross, which is a dirt bike magazine, to my subscription. And my very detailed drawings that I would do during school every day um, switched from cars for a while to dirt bikes. And I remember looking through the magazines, I'd see how much the bikes cost and how much all the gear costs, the helmet, the goggles, the gloves, the chest protector. And I knew that all this was kind of a fantasy for me, that my family would never be able to afford any of that, but it was fun to dream. Well, uh, as the year rolled on, Nate and Jamie had their birthdays and their parents actually bought them brand new Honda dirt bikes with all the gear, like the chest protector, everything. And it was like, For me to stay in my little group, I had to figure out a way to get a dirt bike. And I was like, man, I can't afford, I can't even afford the helmet. 
Maybe the gloves, but I'm going to need the actual dirt bike. And then I realized, I, my neighbor pays me like $20 to mow her lawn. If I could mow enough lawns for long enough, I could save up my money and I could get a used dirt bike. So that's what I started doing. I used my parents' dot matrix printer. Some of you know what that is. It's, anyhow, I won't even describe what it is. It's a really old printer that dinosaurs used back, you know, way back. And I printed up these flyers, you know, lawn mowing, $20. I put our home phone number because we had an answering machine that said, leave a message. And before I knew it, I had a handful of regular clients. I would take my parents' push lawnmower, and I used some rope, and I would tie it to the back of my BMX bike, and I would tow the lawnmower around. I mean, one of these houses was about a mile away, but I'd get there, mow their lawn, and I just kept saving up this money in a savings account at the local bank. Eventually, I had about $1,000, and so I started looking through the classified ads in the newspaper. A newspaper, by the way, is like, how do I describe it? It's a big piece of paper that you used to get the news on. And uh, they didn't have Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, so you would find used things in the classifieds. And I found a motorcycle that was within my price range. Uh, my parents have kind of always worked weekends as long as I've known them. They're super hardworking people. And I knew that my parents wouldn't be able or available to take me to go look at this. So I asked one of my buddy's dads, and he took me. And we went and looked. It was way out in the country. This guy had rebuilt the whole engine. I took one ride on this thing, and it was wicked fast. It was such a fast motorcycle. It was awesome. So I handed over my hard-earned cash, about a year of labor, and we loaded up my Yamaha YZ80. Here's what it looked like. We loaded it up into the Chevy Astro minivan, and the whole way home, I sat next to it and kind of held it stable as my buddy's dad took me home. And I was like, man, this is it. I mean, my dream has come true. I am living the life. I made it happen. I got my dream motorcycle. It looked like everything I had dreamed of. And then as time went on, um, the dream wasn't quite as good as I thought. The problem is the guy who had rebuilt the motor, he, he hadn't done a very good job. And so I would get out with my buddies, and we'd all start our motorcycles. Well, they would start theirs. And I would just keep kicking the thing, kick-starting it, and I'd change out the spark plug, and I'd mess with the carburetor. And for one or two or three outings, I was like, okay, this is fine. We'll get it dialed in. I, I never could get it dialed in. And there were so many times that I would just be kind of sitting there, and my buddies, they were nice. Every once in a while, they would be like, hey, let's switch, and they'd kind of humor me. But the thing just never worked like it was supposed to. Now, I wonder if you can relate to any of that. Um, I know you've got lower lows than that in your story. I've got lower lows than that in my story. It's kind of a dip. But I remember sitting there and just having this feeling of like, I worked so hard for this and it's not working. Uh, is that maybe how you feel about your marriage? Maybe it's how you feel about your parenting. Maybe it's how you feel about your career. Live long enough, you'll have something that you work real hard for and it, it just... I mean, maybe your marriage, other people look at it and they're like, wow, that's a nice, shiny, beautiful thing. But what you know is the engine doesn't start anymore. Live long enough and you'll have moments like this. I remember um, as my friends, their two dads were super engaged. Uh, I was real happy to work for my own motorcycle. But I remember thinking, man, if one of my buddy's dads, if their bike wasn't running, I know they'd help them figure it out. And at age 13 or 14, I had gone as far as I could go in my capacity to figure it out, but there was no one there to help me in that kind of moment of realization that I think we all have at different times where we realize, wow, that person has that kind of family system, or that person's pay parents paid for college, or like, what would it be, like, what would life be like to have a, a mentor like that, or a coach like that, or, or a help like that? I mean, what about the parts of our stories that are broken? The parts that are painful, the things that we try to fix and we can't. Here's what we're going to wrestle with together for all of our stories. When your story isn't what you want it to be, what can you do? Because the reality is, from age 14 on, the things that don't go right are, are a lot more significant than a dirt bike, aren't they? And we all have these things. We deal with loss, we deal with rejection, we deal with heartbreak. How can you see your story take a turn for the better? In fact, right now, I wonder, this is a little silly, but if you'd rate your story, if this was a dial in front of you here, how's your story right now? 
Would you rate it at terrible? Would you rate it at bad? Maybe you're in the meh place. Meh is like, it's not terrible, but I can't say it's great either. I'm just kind of like making it. Maybe you'd say, yeah, you know, John, actually right now today, my story is pretty good. Or maybe you've really seen some progress in some areas. You'd say, my story's better, or maybe even my story's best. Now, if I could tell you today how you can with your life almost literally grab that knob and turn it to better or best, would you want to know how? I know that might sound like, you know, too good to be true, but I've found it to be true in my life. It's not easy, but it's true, and I want to teach you in this series how, and we're going to learn, as always, from the Word of God. It's where we look uh, for all of our truth. In fact, we're going to find in the Word of God an origin story that involves a whole lot of struggle, but ends up being not just a good story or a better story, but a best story in the end. And this story, as we start, has really four main characters in it. I want to introduce you to them today. The first main character really is God. That even though God's invisible, he's involved in this story. And God, even though he's invisible to you, he is involved in your story. And in fact, we're going to see he wants to be more involved than, than you might think. The three human main characters we're going to see is King Saul. He's the first king of God's people, Israel, this is about a thousand years before Jesus, in what's called the Old Covenant, re recorded in the Old Testament. The next main character is Samuel. Samuel was a God-loving prophet, and his job from God was to anoint the different kings of Israel, to really communicate from God to the people, here's God's leader. And then the third person is this little shepherd boy. He's the youngest of his family, so I relate to him. In fact, I love one paraphrase of the story. It uses the word runt to describe David in his early years. Now, no matter where you are in life, no matter where you related to that dial, terrible, good, better, meh, I think you're going to relate to at least one of these characters. For example, King Saul, he is, in his assessment, living a great life, probably from good to better maybe even to best in his assessment. Samuel's dial, is it terrible? Because Samuel had a dream for the future of what God was gonna do in the world, and that dream in this story gets dashed. It dies, his dream dies. If you're here and you've had a dream die lately, you, you'll relate to Samuel. And then David, when we meet him today, he's ignored, he's ridiculed, he's the runt, he's working manual labor, he's unappreciated, but he has no idea what God has in store for his story. While we need God to write the best story for our life, we see in these three that we all are far more in control of our story than we might think. We have the ability to turn ourselves to God, which can change our story. So let's jump into the action here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 5. What has happened is that King Saul who will reign for about 42 years. At this point, he's reigned about 30-some. And King Saul started off really well. He loved God. He was pointing the people to God. But as often happens, as Saul became wealthy, as he became powerful, as he became comfortable, he kind of drifted from God, and he started to make it all about himself. And God gives him a bunch of opportunities to turn back, and he just, Saul keeps refusing. So eventually God tells Samuel the prophet, King Saul has turned away from me. I'm going to find a leader who's actually turned toward me. And that's what's happening here in 1 Samuel 16 verse 5. Then Samuel, he gets this message from God. God doesn't say here's who the next king is. But God says the next king is one of the sons of a guy named Jesse. So I want you to go to Jesse's town. I want you to call all of his sons together. And when you do, I'll reveal which one is the next king. So uh, Samuel obeys God. He invites Jesse and all his sons. And I've highlighted here his sons and invited them because it's important for you to note at this point, Samuel made it really clear when he arrived, Jesse, um, God has something special for one of your boys. Please invite all of your boys to this very special occasion. Well, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab. He's the tallest, he's the strongest, 
you know, he's that kind of like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. He's just this like strapping man. And he thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. I mean, this has got to be the next king of Israel. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or by his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. God doesn't see people the way you see them. He doesn't see you probably the way you see yourself. What do you think that means? I mean, how does God see people? Well, the next verse tells us the answer to that. People judge by outward appearances. This is God speaking to Samuel. But the Lord looks on the heart. The heart, it's, it's more than just what you're passionate about. It's what you choose to affix your affection to. It's what you choose to delight in. It's really a result of what you set your eyes on, what you think about, what you want to be about. It's your motives. So Jesse, once the prophet says God's actually looking for great heart, Jesse thinks, oh, I know the guy. And he pushes up forward another son. And Samuel says, no, that's, it's not him either. Verse 10, in the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons are presented to this prophet, Samuel, one by one. Samuel says, not it, not it. The Lord has not chosen any of these, Samuel says. And then Samuel, knowing he heard from God, it's one of Jesse's sons, he told Jesse, bring all your sons. It's none of these guys. Verse 11, he asks you know, Jesse, are these all your kids? Are these all your sons? And it dawns on Jesse. Oh my goodness. We do have another one. <laughs> They're still the youngest. We totally forgot he existed. He's out in the field. He's, he's watching the, sheeps, the sheep and the goats while we're all doing this. I mean, think about this for a moment. An entire family gets invited to a really special event. Samuel the prophet was a big deal. The whole nation knew who he was. And as everyone's getting ready, no one even thinks David should be there too. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. This is a window into David's story at this moment. At this moment in his life, his daily life is a culture where the oldest didn't just have favoritism from mom and dad. A lot of times the oldest would get double the inheritance or sometimes the oldest would get all of the inheritance. And then the favoritism would often kind of minimize all the way down to that youngest, a lot of times being like a servant or a slave. Very different from today where maybe you think youngests are spoiled. I wonder in your life, have you ever had someone in power Maybe a coach, maybe a boss, maybe an uncle or a parent or a brother or sister say, you're not even worth considering. I mean, we, we, you, it's not that we're going to consider you. You're just not even worth considering. This was David's life at this point in his story. Times seven older brothers, times a dad who thought that way, times a whole town who thought that way. And it sure must have seemed from a human lens like, man, my story's never going to be anything like my older brothers. Well, David's story's about to take a change. The dial's about to move. Whether you call that terrible, bad, or meh, whatever you want to rank David at, the dial's about to change radically. Why does David's story change? What is it about him? Is it that he was the youngest? No. God tells us why the dial on David's life story changes. It's described here in chapter 13, verse 14. This is what God was looking for. The Lord was seeking a leader after his own heart. So what was it about David that stuck out in the sight of God? His heart. It's all about the heart. God, as the author, the writer of the human story from Adam and Eve until Christ returns over many thousands of years, many civilizations and generations, continents and nations, he's always looking across humanity for those few people whose hearts are actually turned toward him. And he's waiting for their heart to collide with his heart so that he can do miracles in the world, and the bottom line is this, your story can take a turn. Today, your story can take a turn, no matter your past, no matter what you've been through, 
No matter the things you've done or that others have done to you, your story, like David's, it can take a turn if you will turn your heart toward God. And the more you do this, the more consistently you do this, the more you're going to see your story change. Now, by the way, the fact that you're in this moment, you're in this room, or you're over at Avon, or you're watching online, means it shows there's a part of your heart that's turned toward God. I wonder right now, um, would you maybe just, in your heart, would you just pray to God, God, I want to seek you with my heart. God, I, I want you in my story. I want you to write my story. I want you to make my story what I could never make it on my own. You know, earlier I asked you where your story is on this dial. And we kind of joked, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could, if there was just literally a dial on the wall, you could just, when your story's terrible, you could just turn it. Here's how you turn it. It's not actually with your hand, it's with your eyes. It's what you set your eyes on which determines then what you've set your heart on. I wonder lately, what have you had your eyes fixed on? Have you been looking at the past? Those wounds, the people who've wronged you, the people who've hurt you. Maybe it's recent wounds in the last month or two. Maybe it's wounds from years ago. And that's really when you've got free time, when you're driving, when you have downtime, you're thinking about how wrong it was that those people did that to you. If that's what your eyes are on, you're not going to have your best possible story. Do you need to work through it? You, you know, is counseling helpful, et cetera? Yes. But ultimately, if you spend your whole life looking backwards, you're not going to live your best possible story. The same is true if you're always looking inwards. The prophet Jeremiah, a different prophet, once wrote, the human heart, that's all of our hearts, is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, if you look at your own heart to guide your life, it's going to lead you to some bad places. You're not going to have your best possible life. Maybe uh, you're forward thinking. Maybe you've been downward, just depressed. Maybe you've been looking sideways. What's that mean? All the people around you. Man, my buddy's parents paid for college for them. My, the, man, if I had a marriage like that, if I had a boss like that, if my boss would treat me like this other person, that's looking sideways. You can fix your sight to be Godward. You're doing it right now. And you can learn to do it day after day. That's what made David who he was, and that's why God chose to turn his story, to transform his story so significantly. Your story takes a turn when you turn your heart toward God. Now, I'm not going to dive deep into this. You might want to pull out your phone and take a picture, but let me give you a few dashboard gauges since our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, a lot of times, let me, let me let you guys in on an insight here. I think I'm a better person than I am. I think I'm more generous, more kind, more forgiving, and guess what? You do too. We all do. We're, we're not very good uh, self-assessors. So the Bible gives us some very tangible ways to know where our heart actually is. Um, your speech. If someone recorded your conversations for the last week, what's the theme in it? You're telling everyone how upset you are about someone who hurt you, then your gaze is backwards. Your, your, your eyesight is backwards. Uh, are you just talking about all the people around you and what they think? Then your eyesight, you're, you're fixed on things that are sideways. You're telling everyone how terrible it is, it's downward. So you can monitor your heart most accurately, not by saying, hmm, where's my heart? But by saying, what are the things I talk about? And what are the things I spend money on? You can look up each of these passages. Jesus said, where your treasure goes, your heart follows. Am I obeying God's word? I mean, when I know that God said, crystal clear, do this, don't do that. Don't be drunk with wine. Flee youthful lusts. I mean, there's these clear commands. Am I obeying any of them? And if I'm not, and I know them, then my heart's, you know, probably not as much under God as I think it is. Who's the king of my life? Is it me or is it Jesus, that's a whole different message. You can just snap a picture of that. But I want to go deeper into David's story because in these three characters, King Saul, Samuel the prophet, young shepherd boy David, you're going to see three ways that your story could change. And I think this is such a key time because especially here where school has restarted for most of our kids and even if you don't have kids, we all kind of think in semesters. We've got like a fall semester ahead of us. How's your story going to change from now till Christmas? 
There's things we can't predict. We don't know what will happen with the stock market. We don't know which of us will have car accidents. We don't know which of us will get a cancer diagnosis. We don't know which of us will get a promotion or meet the love of your life. I mean, your story's going to change in these next few months. And in these three characters, we see three routes that it could take. One is negative, two are positive. We'll start with the negative. It's King Saul, that first king of Israel. Because this principle, when you turn your heart toward God, he makes your story better. By the way, that doesn't mean he makes your story easier. We'll talk more about that later. He makes your story better, more significant, more fulfilling, more purpose, more legacy. But the same principle works in reverse. If you've been pointed toward God and he has blessed you, and in your blessing or prosperity you drift away from God, guess what? You're, you're actually turning the dial away from better, back towards meh, back towards bad, by drifting away from God. And that's what happened to Saul. Summary of his whole career, Saul was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned for 42 years, so to age 72. That's a pretty awesome, I mean, that's a good life, right? He's king for 42 years. It's a good life. It's maybe even you'd rank it at better. But I want to show you how he missed out on best. This is really significant. I mentioned earlier that toward the end of his life, he starts repeatedly disobeying God. And God is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's patient with Saul and with us. And God gives Saul many opportunities to turn back to him. But Saul keeps doing things like instead of making sacrifices to God, he literally builds a monument to himself. Like, I'm going to build a statue for me. Stuff like that. And eventually, through Samuel, God speaks and he says this, How foolish you are, Saul. You have not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. Now, I'm not going to try to untangle all this theologically, but here's what God says to King Saul. Had you kept my commands, you, I would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What does that mean? Well, I'm pretty sure it means that you know how Jesus, the Savior of the world, who everyone will worship someday, he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David? I believe God, what does it mean your kingdom will reign forever? It's that kingdom. Jesus could have been born in the city of Saul if Saul had kept his heart tuned in to God. I mean, that's what God, God is saying. Your kingdom would have been, when people think of Israel, they would think, Saul, that's what I wanted for you. That's even what I gave you. Jesus, we're told, is descended from David. And God wanted that for Saul. But look at verse 14. But now your kingdom must end. Why? I need a leader who's all about me. I need a leader who's not about himself. And this is true in our families. This is true wherever you have leadership in your life. Wherever God has entrusted things to you, he's looking for a leader who's all about him, not all about ourselves. Look at verse 35 of chapter 15. The Lord was sorry that he had ever made Saul king of Israel. Now, God knows all things. He knows the future. He's sovereign. He's in control. Don't let this shake your faith in God's abilities. But God gives us a free will. He gives us opportunities, just like he did with Adam and Eve. And God more or less says, man, Saul started out so well. I had this beautiful nation to give to someone. I wish I would have picked someone else. Uh, when I first read that verse, as I was praying for all of you and studying and my thought went to the dads and the moms. And here was my prayer. Lord, may it never be true of me that you would say, why did I give Mel to John? Why did I give Jack and Zoe and Evie to him? I'm sorry I ever did because his heart slowly turned away from me and he's not the best leader he could be. I mean, think about this. Saul turned the dial of his life story toward bad by drifting his heart away from God. Now, did he still have a good story? He still had a good story. It's just not what it could have been. I wonder today, if you're a follower of Jesus, will you just determine in your heart, maybe pray that to God right now, like, God, may it never be true of me that you would be sorry 
for entrusting the talents you've entrusted to me, the wealth you've entrusted to me, the opportunities you've entrusted to me, the health you've entrusted to me, the family you've entrusted me, all these things you've given me so I can serve you. May my heart always be fixed on you. May my eyes always be set on you. And when I stumble, may I be quick to get up and look back to you. It wasn't, Saul didn't live a, a less life because he wasn't perfect. We're going to see, in this series, you're going to see David's not perfect. But when David messes up, he gets up and he fixes his eyes back on God. Maybe you're here and you've messed up enough that Satan has whispered into your ears, don't even bother. Do bother. Don't be like Saul. Don't look back at the end of your life and have it be less than it could have been. Get back up, fix your eyes back on God, tell God, I don't ever want you to be sorry for giving me the talents you've given me, the resources you've given me, the people you've put into my influence. Good stories take a turn for the worse when the heart drifts from God. And as I was praying over this, the Spirit of God just put on my heart, there's some of you, you're in this moment, and right now you have more money than you ever thought you would. You have more money in the bank, you're healthy, your marriage is in a pretty good place, now's the time to fix your eyes on God like never before. Now's the time to seek him more. I mean, sometimes, sadly, we'll see this because um, our Financial Peace University here, every year we'll see dozens of families get out of debt. Many of those families have not only paid off their credit cards and their cars, but have completely paid off their homes, and now they, some of them have successful businesses. And that's, that's a test when God blesses you, when you have prosperity. A good story can take a turn for the worse if your heart drifts from God. Well, others of you, you're here and you say, well, John, that's good, but that is not me. I'm not dealing with more success or ease than ever. I'm dealing with broken dreams. I'm dealing with dreams that have literally died. And for you, you're probably going to relate here to Samuel the prophet. Because it was Samuel who had anointed King Saul 30-some years ago. When Saul was a young guy, Israel had never had a king before. All of this was new. And King uh, Saul and Prophet Samuel, they were buddies in the beginning. And Prophet Samuel, he was there through all the ups and downs of leadership as King Saul's figuring out, how do I be a king? How do I lead a nation? And when his heart was pure and things were going right, Samuel was there and Samuel has this deep, Bond, his heart is knit together with King Saul. And when God comes to Samuel and says, I'm done with King Saul, prophet Samuel's just like, no, God, no. I love Saul so much, this can't be. I mean, this is a dream. Samuel had the dream that, that Saul's kingdom would be the kingdom. How can you see God turn your story when your dream has died? We're gonna find the answer to that here Chapter 16, verse 1, now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. It's a really interesting verse. You know that when a dream of yours dies, God does, it's okay for you to mourn it. Jesus wept when he was at Lazarus' grave. It's okay for you to mourn it. Just not for the rest of your life. Don't let that be the theme of the rest of your life. Let it be a, a short chapter in your life. And God says to Samuel, hey, I know what's best for you. I know what's best for the world. I know what's best for the nation you serve. You've mourned long enough. It's time for you to get up. I've rejected Saul, and that's not going to change. So stand up. Fill your flask with olive oil. That's important when you're filling your flask. I know some of you are thinking, there's my life verse. Three words. Fill your flask. <laughs> with olive oil. Fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. In other words, Saul, you know, you're just, you're, your gaze, what is your gaze? It's what your eyes are fixed on. We gaze at the stars or, you know, sometimes your dog will just gaze into your eyes, especially if you're eating meat. <laughs> and, and Samuel is a prophet. He had spent decades with his gaze fixed on God. But what happened? In his heartbreak, broken dreams, even this man of God, his gaze, that dial has turned and his eyes are down. Somewhere between backward and down. He just can't get over this. He's fixated on the debris of a dead dream. And God says, enough, Samuel. 
you're in control. It's time for you to stand up, lift your eyes, and go and obey me. Serve me again. And here's what you're going to do. We've, we've read part of this before. Find a man named Jesse who lives there in Bethlehem. I've selected one of his sons to be my king. Samuel asked, this is interesting, how can I do that? If Saul hears that I'm going to anoint another king with where Saul is at now, God, you and I both know he will kill me. Not a metaphor, literally, he will kill me. And I I prayed about, do I include this part of the story? And I believe that God wanted me to because I believe there's some of you here that there are people in your life, people who are good but not perfect like Saul. Uh, maybe it's from another church. Maybe it's another Christian leader. Maybe it's someone you served, like Samuel served. And you can't move on and obey God in the present and the future because you're still so heartbroken about how they let you down or how they fell short. God wants you to mourn that. It's okay to mourn that. But it's not okay to swim in that and sit in that forever. You gotta stand up. You got to say, God, what do you have next for me? Where do you want me to serve? And then go and obey God, just like Samuel does here. And to Samuel's credit, he does obey God. I mean, think of how hard this was. He had to wrestle through the emotions. Turning those dials, it is that simple, but they're so hard to turn. I mean, when, you're, when your eyesight has been downward or backward, to actually turn that dial to Godward, if you're anything like me, I got to wrestle that thing with all my strength. Look at verse four. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. I think that's a word for someone today. Principle number two here, faithful stories stay faithful by trusting in God even when a dream has died. Some of you here, you've been faithful to God. Like me and David, not perfect, but faithful. You've been faithful in churches that are Bible-centered. You've been faithful. You've done what you can, and a dream has died. Keep your story faithful by not trusting your emotions after a dream has died. I can't tell you over the years how many of my dreams have died. And I know some of yours are far worse than than any of mine could be, but Mel and I, we've, we've lost pregnancies. We've had moments in the adoption of our youngest where it just looked like it wasn't going to happen. God's allowed me to write some books, and some have been bestsellers, but those are not the first books that I set my hand to. Many a dream has died in my life. Many a dream will die in your life because we live in a world that's broken by sin. When a dream dies, it doesn't mean God's not at work, and it takes faith in that moment to believe God has something even better I mean, in my mind, this dream was the best life possible, and I know you've had some dreams die like that, where you're like, but that was my best. That would have been the best spouse, or the best family, or the best future, and now, it's not just like it's a long shot. There's no way it could happen now. I mean, they're gone, or they're dead, or they hate me. There's just no way. And in those moments, we have to choose to believe God has something better than what I thought was best. Saul was a good king, but guess what? David, man after God's own heart, he ends up being a better king. And prophet Samuel, who wants God to be glorified and his people to be served well, he's actually going to get what he wants even better through God's plan of David. So don't give up when a dream has died. Stay faithful. Well, God's better at this time was this shepherd boy David, the youngest, the runt, overlooked, but with a heart fixed on God. And he would, through a lot of struggles, become the most glorious, powerful king in all of Israel's history. His descendants would include, born in the city of David, Jesus. We could do a whole other message on what did David's Godward heart look like? And I don't have time in the series for it, but I've summarized it here. You can pull out your phone and snap a picture Um, You could look in our small group study guide, which is every week posted with the sermon, so you can go deeper throughout the week. Here's just a few of the attributes of David's life that came from having a Godward heart. He was faithfully serving. He persevered through difficulty. He was humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. David was not entitled. 
Do you know that after David gets anointed king, he doesn't march to the palace and say, hey, that's my throne? It'll be seven years. And in those seven years, he'll face a giant, literally. But he'll also be hunted by Saul. Every time he interacts with Saul, David is not entitled. He says, uh, he knows I've been anointed by God, but I'm not going to ever lay a hand on Saul. God will remove Saul when it's time. In other words, he trusted God's timing and process even when it didn't make sense. David worked hard. He was God-centered. Because he had a Godward heart, he was pleasant to be around, this chapter describes. Think about that. The more Godward your heart is, the more pleasant you will be um, to the people who live with you. David also prayed his emotions to God. And we have many of those prayers recorded in the book of Psalms. Well, this story continues. Let's jump into this moment where Samuel's talking to David's dad, and David's dad's like, oh yeah, I guess we do have another one. And verse 11, prophet Samuel says, send for him at once. In fact, we're not even gonna sit down to eat all this fancy food you've prepared for me until he gets here. So Jesse sends for David. This is David's moment. David has no idea this is coming. He's just being faithful, being humble, loving God. He's no idea this is coming. David arrives, and prophet Samuel looks at him, and immediately the Lord speaks to him and says, this is the one. This is it. This is the guy of everyone in the country. No one has a heart that's as fixed on me as this little shepherd boy. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought, and he anoints David with this oil. Beautiful moment. But as I mentioned, it doesn't mean that everything goes easy from here on. Key verse 13, and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Uh, This is key. On on this side of the cross, we are followers of Jesus. This story is a thousand years before God came to earth in the person of Jesus. Uh, in, In the era that we're in, the new covenant, when you believe in Jesus, the spirit of the Lord comes to live inside you. It's called the Holy Spirit. At this time, the Holy Spirit didn't live inside people, but God would send the spirit upon people. Maybe you've heard of Samson, He was so strong, not because of his DNA, but because the Spirit of God was upon him. The Spirit of God was on Saul for the first 30-some years of his ministry. That's what made him prosperous and made the kingdom succeed. It wasn't Saul. It was the Spirit of God on Saul. And in this moment, God's Spirit moves from Saul to David. And it's because the Spirit of God is on him that when he faces a giant and everyone else says, this is impossible, and he says, I know my God, my God can do this. It's the Spirit of God that empowers him to do the impossible. In other words, David's story, not only would he have never been king, he he never would have fought the battle, he never would have won the battles if he hadn't had a God-focused heart, God-focused eyesight. Bad stories take a turn for the better when the heart seeks God. So on our little dial, David's story flips over to better. But the reason is that for the years leading up, his dial has been fixed on God. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of this, but let me point out so that you're very clear as you leave here today, better does not equal easiest. You want the better or the best story for your life? It is not going to be the easiest path for your life. Ask anyone who's won a gold medal or a championship, it wasn't easy. If you want at the end of your life, when you meet God in heaven and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and you look back and you think, yes, that was the life I was supposed to live, guess what? You're going to have to do hard things. You're going to have to die to yourself at times. You're going to have to be unpopular at times. David's going to be hunted. Saul, the king, is going to throw a killing spear at him three times. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be good. It's not going to be easy. It's going to get better. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be the best life possible. So I just wonder for you on this dial, are you at Godward? Where's your dial been set this last week? Dwell in re-chewing the wounds of the past? Stirring up the discontent of the present inside? 
gazing around at all the people who seem to have it better, down at the ground, discouraged? Would you join me right now in just saying, God, I, I want to fix my eyes on you. I want to live like David. I want to be a person after your own heart. Now, the beautiful thing is that David wasn't perfect. David, toward the end of his life, he's going to sin big time. I mean big time. Marital unfaithfulness, whole bunch of stuff. But what does David do after his sin? He gets back up, because the dial turned inward for a while there, and he adjusts the dial back to Godward. And so you don't have to be perfect to see God make your story the best that it can be, but you do have to do this faithfully, day after day, month after month, year after year. And in my experience, it's usually after years of doing this, turning your dial toward Godward, after years of doing it, that you start to notice, wow, my life story dial, the whole trajectory of my life, it's in a different place than it would have been if I hadn't been focusing on God. So for some of you, today's a reset. For others of you, maybe you don't even know where you stand with God. And what you need to know today is, is God's promise through Jesus that because of Jesus, you don't have to be perfect. God demonstrated his love for you in this. While we were sinners, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. While we sinned, while we messed up, while our hearts were turned away from God, Christ died for us. Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you looked to him for freedom from, from addiction, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt? That's step one of setting your dial on God. And then keep looking to Jesus every day, the author and the perfecter of your faith, the best writer of your story. Give him the pen. Change your story by changing your dial. Set your sights on God. Stick with it. A lot of people do this for a month or a week. We'll see it every Easter, every Christmas Eve. People are moved. They believe. If you want to really see your life change, you got to stick with it. He does the work. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. But you've got to choose to set the dial if you'll do that. God's best will occur over your lifetime. The best might still include a wheelchair. The best might still include cancer in this broken world. The best might still include heartache and suffering, but you're going to have your eyes fixed on God through it. And not only will he get you through it, he'll use you in it to reach other people. And when you have a new body in heaven and you look back, you'll say it was all worth it. I'm so glad I kept my eyes on God. I told you earlier about my little motorcycle drama as a 13 or 14-year-old boy. And I know what some of you were thinking during my sob story. Wah, wah, John. First world problems, right? Like, so you didn't get a brand new motorcycle like your buddies. So your parents didn't take you to get it fixed and help you figure it out. There's harder things in life. Guess what? I totally agree. There's harder things in life. And yet I've learned as I've gotten older that our origin stories, they do stick with us in ways that we don't even realize those of you who know me know that I love Toyota trucks because they always start. <laughs> you can put a Toyota truck in the saltwater ocean and you can pull it out and put a new battery in it. It'll start up. People have done it. Why am I so drawn to a vehicle that I just know like no matter what, I own it and it'll start? Why? Because if I turn a key and the thing doesn't start, there's a little bit of like weird trauma trigger in my heart. Is that pathetic? Absolutely. But that's part of my story, and you've got things like that in your story. Why do I make sure I'm at all my kids' soccer games? Because while I, I know my parents love me, and I'm super grateful for my parents, and I want to honor them, but I know what it's like to be out on the soccer field and look over, and there's all your friends' parents week after week, and, and, and then my parents weren't there. I know what that feels like, so I don't want that for my kids. So there's, there are entire choices that I make in life that I don't even realize go back to things that hurt me in my childhood. That's true of us all. And apart from God, our own heart, we don't even realize why we're doing some of the stuff that we're doing. But here's the difference. Here's the adjustment when you fix your dial on God. I could maybe, with self-help, if I didn't believe in Jesus, try to improve my life. But what could only happen by me having my dial fixed on God for about 20 years now is this. I've learned that he's my father in heaven and that he's always there for me. I'm never alone. He always provides for me. 
He's interested in me. He cares. He notices me. And as I have received that, guess what? That changes who I am. And it changes how I interact with people, changes what I do in life. Changes me to the point, I, I'm not bitter about my parents at all. They were raised by parents from the Great Depression. I mean, they, they, their parents were even less accessible to them. It's a struggle to survive. So, you know, God can do in you, he can fill these voids, some that you don't even know are there. He can fill your self-inflicted voids. You've made bad choices. You've got divots in your heart. You've got gaps. You've got cavities. God can fill those and in the process, revolutionize your story. From bad to better, all the way to best. If like David, we'll keep fixing our eyes on him. So let's this week be consistent with our eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to him to meet all our needs. Let me pray that for you right now. Father, in this place, Lord, you see the brokenness of our stories. You see the wounds in our hearts. You see things that we hide. We don't even tell the people who are closest to us because they sound silly or we just, and we don't even want to think about those things. You want to fix those things in us. You want to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, you're a good father. You have a better and a best life story for every person hearing this message. And God, I, I, just, I don't want any of them to miss out on it like Saul did. I don't want to miss out on your best. So Lord, where our eyes have been uh, fixated on the people who've wronged us or our big feelings or the past or the people around us today, we just, we move that dial. Would you help us? Our hands are weak. Would you help us, Lord? Our hands shake. Would you just strengthen our, our souls right now to to twist that dial Godward. Give us a Godward focus. Jesus, that as we fix our eyes on you, you would not only be the author of our faith, but the perfecter of it. Lord, would you show my brothers and sisters that you're a faithful God. You who began a good work in them, you will be faithful to complete it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if today's episode encouraged you or helped you in any way, we would invite you to keep following Jesus with us. We send out a daily video text devotional. You can receive that and you can learn how to gather with us online or in person for our weekend services. All of that is available over at cp.news. That's the letter C, the letter P.news on your phone or desktop or tablet browser. Thanks again for joining us and please join me again next week for the Connection Point Podcast.